Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. In a, in a uh, one of the most famous sermons ever, could we call the Sermon on the Mount that? In, in one of the most famous sermons ever, Jesus said, well, he said a number of memorable things in that sermon, but he made this comment, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Why will they be called sons of God? Because they're just like his father. They're just like their father, who is a peacemaker, a peace giver. And it's no surprise that Jesus would say this. He is the prince of peace, according to Isaiah 9, 6. We are to bring peace. As a matter of fact, Jesus seems to be promising a great blessing when we not only receive the gift of his peace, but we're giving, we're sharing that peace in our world. So are you ready to fight? Amen. <laughs> how, how does that work? Can the same Jesus, the same Bible that calls us to peace, also call us to fight? To, to put on the gloves? Well, that's what we're going to try to understand as we study this great letter in the Bible, Jude. I say it's a great letter. I did not say it was the most well-known letter. Uh, we don't get by Jude a lot. It, it may be one of the more unread letters, books of the Bible. You may want to go ahead and turn there now in your Bible. Just go to Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Jude is right before it. Uh, I, I like how uh, Chuck Swindoll in his commentary described Jude. He said, it's a one-room chapel next door to a massive cathedral. And it often gets lost in the shadow of its towering neighbor. But not today. Not, not today and, and not for the two Sundays to follow. We're going to try to give Jude its due. Now again, we, we are to be peacemakers. The, the, what, what Jude's calling us to doesn't challenge, is not contrary to that. You know, when I think about peace, I think about our, our personality. And we're a, we're a spectrum of personalities in here. We, we've got some who it is peace at all costs. Maybe even in a way that's not always healthy, Right? I mean, whatever for the sake of peace. And then there's the other side. You're ready for the fight. Right now, bring it. You wake up ready to go every day. And to think it's God's fight, well, now you're really chomping at the bits. And then there's most of us in between. We're, we're kind of in there somewhere. But you know, wherever we might be on this scale of wanting peace or wanting to fight, man, I just can't help but think you look back over the last several years and we've got to be wondering, is, is, are we supposed to do something about all this? I mean, I, I can only imagine we're, we're getting a little bit angry, a little bit confused, a little bit frustrated with changes in our world that defy science, that defy medicine, that, that defy human history, that defy common sense. And everybody's just kind of going along with it because that's, because that's nice. Is it? Is it? Is it nice? Hey, what what makes you think it's time to fight? What 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 for you is a line? Hey, th this line has been crossed, so so now it's time to fight. You know, I, I actually think we are in a place should feel a sense 
of moral outrage. But, ooh, boy, folks, <laughs> you know, you and I, we don't, we don't do very good with moral outrage. I, I may have a right reason to step into the place of moral outrage, but, man, the moment I get there, I almost instantly begin to look down. I begin to feel superior. I'm morally better than you. That, that's why I ask the question, what crosses the line for you? Because you do realize you and I are very comfortable with immorality. We're very comfortable, even an active participant, in many things that are wrong. But then all of a sudden, a line, oh, now I'm morally outraged. Now there's a problem. And I, and I tend to look down on. And when I'm in the place of moral outrage, I guess just being there makes me think, hey, whatever I'm thinking, God's thinking, right? However, I would handle this got to be the way God would handle it too. Probably shouldn't be that confident in yourself. But yet, I would still, even with what I just said, I, I, I mean, surely we're in a place where somebody should be morally outraged as you look at what's gone on the last two years, five years, ten years. You know, I wonder, as I say that, if God's up there in heaven kind of chuckling right now. Oh, look who just got to the party. Really, now you're, you're morally outraged. Like, why weren't you 20 years ago? Or 50 years ago, or a, or a hundred years ago. I think God would look at our, our culture, our community, our world and say, you know, I've been kind of morally outraged for, well, forever. <laughs> and I, I think we could describe Jude even as a 2,000 year old letter. Why is it being written? Because of moral outrage. And it's being written to the church of 2023 and it's calling us to fight. Now, we, we feel, I could just end right there and we all know what, I know what I'm going to do. But, but what does that mean to fight? What does that look like? Who are we fighting? How do we carry out that fight? Well, that's what we're going to be trying to understand from this letter of Jude. So if you have it open there or gotten to it in your Bible app, uh, let's read. Now, I said it's a short letter. And it is short compared to Corinthians or Romans or Matthew. But it... While it is short, it's going to take me a moment to read it. And we're going to read it. We're going to read the entire letter today and next Sunday and the Sunday after that. And it's going to take some time to read this whole letter. But for a lot of us, we'll have read it three times more than we ever have before. So let, let, let's, let, Jude's been lonely. Let's give him some attention here, okay? So beginning in verse 1, this letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I'm writing to all of you who've been called by the Father and who, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. Boy, aren't those precious words. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. Dear friends, I'd been eagerly planning to write you about the salvation we all share, but now I find I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Verse 4 is why this letter is being written. That This is the issue. This is what has happened. We're using God's love, God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's acceptance as a way to say, I can go on living in my sin. 
That, that's what's being dealt with here. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt. But later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. In the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. That's probably a strange sentence (laughs) you haven't run by before. But these people scoff at things they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them. And so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them, for they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money. And like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in autumn. They are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. They are like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They're like wandering stars doomed forever to blackest darkness. Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. But you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy still to others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. That line's probably where we get the phrase, love the sinner, but hate the sin. Verse 24, now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All this judgment we've been reading about, 
God's desire is for you to enter heaven, enter his presence without a single fault. And he can do it through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. Amen. Boy, there's a lot there, isn't it? For a short letter, Jude packs a punch. And that's why we got the boxing gloves up there. <laughs> he packs a punch. Now, as we start this series, I want to kind of start with some introduction material, or just kind of an overview, a big, a big picture. So let's answer, first of all, who? Who is Jude? Well, we see right there in verse 1 that he's identified as the brother of James. Now, that's not James the Apostle. That's another James. As a matter of fact, if you were to flip back a few pages before John and Peter, if you were to go to your left from Jude, you'd run into a letter from James. James and Jude are brothers, and they both wrote letters that are in the Bible. James and Jude, parents are Mary and Joseph. James and Jude are half-brothers of Jesus. Don't assume that they grew up in awe of their big brother. Don't assume they grew up impressed with their big brother. As a matter of fact, the gospels tell us quite a different story. They were embarrassed by Jesus. They, they, they thought he was crazy. They were ashamed of him out in public. There's actually a story where they go to get their brother out of the public eye because he's so embarrassing. I know none of us have ever dealt with anything like that. We don't know what it is to be embarrassed by a family member. And you don't want anybody to see him. But James and Jude knew they didn't want people to see. They didn't want people to see Jesus. There's another place where they were literally mocking him. Hey, why aren't you going up to the festival? Tell everybody who you are. That, that's how they thought of their big brother. Now, obviously, that changed, didn't it? We don't know the story behind when or how that came about. We know it was after the resurrection because that's the life-changing proof. Oh, my brother's who he said he was. <laughs> I need to change. Something needs to happen here. And so Jude moved from mocking and being embarrassed by his brother. Look what it says there in verse 1. To just identifying himself as a slave to Jesus Christ. Man, who wants to identify as a slave? And can you imagine identifying as a slave to your own family? To, to your big brother? I don't know. He introduces it there. It seems like he's kind of proud to be a slave of Christ. You know, he never mentions that he's who his big brother is. You, you think it's because he knows people will talk bad about him name dropping? You know, we, we use that phrase, name dropping. We, we use that in a negative way a lot. But you know what? Sometimes, I, if you don't know who I am, if I can connect myself to somebody, then you understand a little bit about me. And maybe even give some authority to what I'm here to say or what I'm here to do. If you can understand I'm connected with, with him or with her. Seems like in some places that name dropping might be kind of good. I don't know. I kind of see myself saying, yeah, me, me and Jesus were brothers. We hung out all the time. Yeah. 
Boy, it's hard to say that without it being the negative, isn't it? <laughs> We're brothers. It seemed to be enough for Jude to say, I'm, I'm his slave. I think partly he says that out of uh, humility. I wonder, I, I'm confident Jude, just like Paul, absolutely trusted in the forgiveness and love. I know Paul never got over the fact that he killed Christians. Before he became one, he had them executed. And he, and he never, never got over that. He just, you know, man, help me. That, that's where I have a hard time holding on to God's grace. And I wonder if Jude here is just, man, I, I mocked. I grew up with him and I mocked him and I was embarrassed by him. And now as I'm, I'm not going to identify as his brother. It's, it's, it's good enough to just say I'm his slave. Amen. Now Jude, Greek, that's a Greek name, okay? So it's, that's his name in the Greek. In the Hebrew, uh, he would be called Judas or Judah. Those are all the same names. Like we, we say Mary in English, we say Maria in Spanish. Sounds differently, but it's the exact same name, right? You got that. So Jude, Judas, Judah, they're all the, they're all the same name. Now I know for some, this may sound a little bit awkward to be talking about. We don't, we don't talk a whole lot about the siblings of Jesus, do we? And a matter of fact, in some portions of the church, there's actually the teaching that he had no siblings. That, that, that Mary was a, a perpetual virgin. That teaching does not come from the Bible. It, it, it comes from the church. It comes from organized religion, of which I'm a part of. I'm a part of organized religion. But folks, our faith is not an organized religion. Our faith is in God's Word. That's what we go to measure things. And what does God's Word say? I'm glad you asked. Matthew 13, verse 55. Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? So he had at least four brothers. Now, we know where James and Judas landed. Don't, that can't, hey, what happened to Joseph and Simon? Not everybody believes. Not in a family, not in a church, not in a community. Not everybody believes. By the way, I don't know that Joseph and Simon didn't believe. They, they may have. We, we just don't know how things folded out for them, how it, how it finished for them. James and Judas, we do seem to know. So there's who. There's who. So then what? What is this letter about? Well, James or Jude is writing to warn, to challenge about false teachers, false ideas that are entering into the church. And we've got to be prepared to fight that. Now, do you realize I just said something monumental? Where's the fight? In the church. When you saw that the sermon series was called Fight... I bet something or someone came to your mind. Finally, we're going to get some orders here on what we do about this government. What we do about this culture. What we're going to do about the... Who do you think the enemy is? Who, who do you think we're fighting? Folks, the fight is inside the church. Now, I'm going to develop that thought. I'm not expecting you to take that right just yet, but I'm going to develop it a little bit more this morning and then especially the next two weeks. But that's clearly where Jude is directing. Folks, the church, when Jude is writing, we're about 50 years past the resurrection. Now, 50 years is a long time, right? But when you think in terms of history, I mean, it was just like yesterday that Jesus was resurrected. I mean, there's still 
living eyewitnesses to the life and the teachings of Christ. Jude is one of them. There was people who heard him, and yet it didn't even take 50 years before these false ideas, this false thinking is coming into the church. And so Jude now is writing to say, guys, man, you've got to fight this. We've got to defend the faith. Now, faith here is not just that, that warm feeling I get when I think about, I believe in Jesus. You know, that, that sweet faith that I have in Jesus. No, we're, we're talking here about orthodoxy. We're talking about a set of doctrines that have been handed down through the scriptures. They're understood, they're taught, and they're lived. We defend that. Folks, you and I hold to an ancient faith. But it is an ancient faith that has stood the test of time and cultures, all cultures. It has stood the test of all cultures. And it speaks relevantly, currently, to the human condition. That's what we defend. That's what we fight. You know, if I was to give you a, a key verse whenever I'm looking at a whole book of the Bible or a letter of the Bible, uh, hey, what's one verse that kind of wraps this up? We've got a who, we've got a, a why, now a what? what? What's a key idea here? I like verse 3. I like Jude 3 for, for expressing what this is about. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, that's the word used there, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Folks, there is right and there is wrong. And there is consequences in right and wrong. And that's what we defend. That's what we're fighting for. That's what we're contending about. Now that word contend, it means to war. It means to agonize. It means to give, to show intense effort on behalf of someone, on behalf of something. Is intense effort, is that the word that describes you? Would, would, would the phrase, would the idea of intense effort, would that describe your, my commitment to learn my faith and to grow in that faith? Would, would intense effort describe my commitment to live that faith? Would intense effort describe my passion to share that faith? Would intense effort describe my commitment to defend, to defend that faith in this world? Intense effort. That's what you and I are being called to. Does it describe you? Intense effort. Folks, not contending is not an option. I'm too busy. That's not an option. This isn't really affecting me and my home. That's that's not an option. Live and let live. That's not an option. And here's why it's not an option to not contend. Because the devil and his disciples are contending. Now, I've said who we're fighting, and we're 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 going to take time next week looking at how we deal with outside. Then the week after that is going to be how we deal with, with inside. But the wrong thinking and the wrong ideas that come into the church come from the outside. 
They come with the energy and the passion of the outside. So we certainly need to acknowledge and recognize what's happening outside. And they are contending. They take no prisoners in their war. Two weeks ago, February 15th, the New York Times received two letters. One was signed by a hundred current contributors to the New York Times. The other was signed by 370 past contributors of the New York Times. And both of these letters were saying the same thing. You, New York Times, are not trans-supportive enough. What? What? The entirely pro-LBGTQIA+, and from now on I'll just say trans, because they're getting further and further from using those letters. They're just identifying everything as trans. Trans is the point of the spear. And as trans moves forward, it sweeps up everything else with it behind it. And so they've just identified it now as the, the trans movement. And they're saying, hey, New York Times, you're not trans supportive enough. It's interesting. The New York Times does not have one single article in any kind of question or attack or stating anything about the trans movement, anything wrong about it at all. So why would they be challenged as not being trans supportive enough? Well, the letter explains because you have written articles, you have put articles in your paper that where the writer has referred to another side. That's the focus of their contending. There is to be no other side. They're actually operating out of, of what is being called cultural Marxism. And in cultural Marxism, there is a one-side-ism. There's one side. There's one truth. Two sides, that's the language of the oppressor. It's the oppressor that says there's two ways to look at it. There's two ways to understand this. No, there's just one side. Now, what, what would be the other side that was brought up in these articles? Well, another side might be the common sense questions of parents. You know, it's interesting throughout history in all cultures, generally we kind of, well, I don't know what the word is, protect don't really involve kids in, in the discussions of sex and sexuality. But have you noticed in the last year or two, children are front and center. They are the absolute target. It's trans entertainment. It's trans education and curriculum. It's trans medicine and surgeries. For who? For children. Total focus on the children. And anybody that says, hey, wait, wait a minute, have we... Has anybody, like in a scientific way, talked through this? That One of the articles was actually bringing up England. England's a little bit further along in this than we are. And they're enough far along that the damage of these medicines and surgeries, guess what? People are now starting to sue. Because, hey, wait a minute. I was a kid. I, I hadn't really thought through all that. I said I thought something or wanted something. Or even worse, parents are moving them this way for their own virtual signaling. And all of a sudden, these, these 12-year-olds are becoming 21-year-olds, and they're saying, I didn't want to be that. And the damage is irreparable. And so just referring to that reality, you're showing you're not trans-supportive enough. Medicine, parents, and of course, the biggest crosshairs, the Christian faith. For them, they will contend until there is no other side. 
There is no other voice than the trans-supportive voice. And they contend for that. They are showing what intense effort looks like. And boy, I tell you, they take no prisoners. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I a little confession here. For all of my life, all of my Christian life, I thought the church was who struggled with legalism and judgmentalism. And we do struggle with that, don't we? It's okay to nod yes. Yeah, we do. We can be judgmental of each other, judgmental of the world. It's stepping into that moral outrage, right? I'm better than you. You're not as good as me, or at least I'm not breaking rules you see, and I'm not breaking the rules that everybody's not okay with, right? And so we, we get judgmental. We get. I just thought that was a problem in the church. You know what I've learned in the last 10 years? That's not a church problem. That's a human problem. And it's kind of sad that we carry our human problem in here and let the church be defined by our human sin. But it is a human problem. The church does not have a monopoly on legalism and judgmentalism. They, they all do it out there. Uh, you know, a, a good example of somebody right now that's in the crosshairs of judgmentalism and legalism, J.K. Rowling. Yeah, J.K. Rowling, who is entirely pro-LBGTQIA+, entirely supportive of the trans movement. As a matter of fact, she just had a, and I say she, the Harry Potter industry just released a game in the last week or two. I imagine you've seen it on commercials or something. It actually has a trans character in the game. And she's being boycotted. Oh, no, not by us. She's being boycotted by the trans movement. Well, what? what? What's that? Why would they be boycotted? Well, not, not for the game per se. But J.K. Rowling had the audacity to say recently, I'm not sure if a trans woman... It's just a question. I mean, we're making massive changes. There should be some discussion how this all plays out, right? I mean, wouldn't that just be common sense thinking what humans do as, we, as we're making these changes? We try to figure out. She says, you know, I'm not sure a trans woman should be put in some of the same places with a biological woman like a prison and an abuse shelter. That seems fair to ask, right? Should we? One-sidedism. She stated something that sounds like it comes from another side. So she's dead in them. She's dead to them. And she's, the term we use obviously, canceled. You know, but she, that, and that's their thing about cultural Marxism. That's another thing about one side. There's no repentance. There's no coming back. There's no explaining. There's no forgiveness. This is legalism and judgmentalism at its finest. J.K. Rowling is dead. She can put all the... Silly trans character she wants in her games. She's dead to us. Folks, that's contending. And you and I are too busy. Well, you know, my goal is to be nice. I mean, wasn't Jesus nice, right? Why is being nice and being true a contradiction today? Why is being nice and being true a contradiction today? They contend. Now, you know, I, I, bet I've, I bet I've said 50 times in the last 10, 20 minutes the word they. Who is they? See, that's the tricky part. And that's where we can get into trouble as a church. 
Because you come to church and a guy like me is up here ranting and raving about they. And clearly they are the enemy. And what do you do with enemies? Well, you destroy enemies. You defeat and you kill enemies. And so we all know now who the enemy is. So ready, break, go get them. And what happens is, is we go to school, we go to work, and we, we see a they. We see somebody who identifies with the they. We see somebody who's a, a part of the they. Or maybe we hear them defending the they. But what we got to remember before we pull out our guns and knives, that they is an individual. Just a person. And a lot of time what that person is doing is they're just trying to figure life out. They're just trying to navigate how to find love and how to find worth. And, and sometimes they're doing that with some real scars and some real open wounds due to the abuse that they've incurred, due, due to the negligences that have been in their lives. And man, they're really hurting and they're really trying to figure that. Well, gosh, women, that makes them sound like all of us in here. And they're just trying to figure this out and navigate. And yes, at the moment, at the moment, they're trying to navigate without the benefit of God and His Word. Now, I can understand why an unbeliever tries to navigate life without God and His Word. What makes me scratch my head is why you and I as believers do that. No, not every time, not every day, not every situation. But folks, we're all guilty. And I don't mean 30 years ago. We're all guilty, probably in the last 30 days. There's a problem, there's a situation, there's a frustration, and you tried to figure it out, you tried to navigate it, you tried to work through it without God and without the direction of His Word. As a matter of fact, sometimes our lives give testimony that we're not living according to what God's Word said. So what does that make us so different from the very person we're defining now as the enemy? Got to be careful with they. Our fight is for right thinking in here so that we can passionately and rightly carry the gospel out there. Okay? Look at that right there. That, that's what I'm going to say Jude is about. That is what I'm going to finish with today. That is what next week, next week we're going to talk about what does it look like to carry that out there. And by the way, there is a lot of bad and evil out there. Are you telling me I'm not supposed to care about that? That I'm not supposed to do anything about, we're going to talk about that next week. What do we do about out there? And what does it mean to carry on the fight in here? That's what we're doing. That's what we're putting on the gloves for. Now, if you think, well, no, I, I, I'm not even sure I remember you saying that when you were reading Jude just a moment ago, and we don't even read Jude that much. Well, don't say that because it is the Word of God. Only needs to say it once. But that idea that I will develop in Jude the rest of today and the next two weeks is not just there. You know, you maybe don't know Jude as well, but you know Paul, right? Listen to the Apostle Paul. I want to read a passage, and it is maybe the most ignored passage in American church history. It may be the singular passage we have, we've either ignored, rebelled, rejected. We are defined in a way that is absolutely opposite of what Paul said here. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. 
But I wasn't talking about unbelievers. That's what Paul said. I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You'd have to leave this world to avoid them. I I love the practicality and straightforwardness of the Bible. You know, it amazes me when people say the Bible's hard to understand. I understood that. That was was pretty clear. Verse 11. I meant that you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer. What did Jude just tell us? They're coming into our church. They're acting like they're one of us. They say they're a follower. I'm talking about people who claim to be a believer yet indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or worship idols or are abusive, a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with them. Now, this is one statement. He's dealing at a high level with the dichotomy of believer and unbeliever. We can go to some other passages that Paul wrote that God gave us, and we realize there's actually a process that we follow before we get to the place of we don't even eat with you. But we are to withdraw fellowship sometimes because sin kills Sin damages the little ones. You know that we all do when nobody's even going to challenge us. They're all destructive. They destroy people. They destroy relationships. And when we see that somebody is committed to their sin, going to stay in that sin, we're absolutely supposed to withdraw. We're doing something that hopefully they wake up and think, hey, I'm in the wrong place. So he says, yeah, but listen to this. Verse 12. This is one the American church. I I don't know about churches everywhere, but I think in American history, we have largely avoided this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. I have no responsibility to judge a single person out there. Now, maybe you're better than the Apostle Paul, but that's what he said. He said, I don't. I don't have the authority. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the ability in any way, shape, or form to handle that rightly. It's not my responsibility to judge the outsiders. Now, next week, we're going to say, well, what do we do with the outsiders? We'll see that next week. Now, folks, I'm not saying every time the church gathers, it judges outsiders. I'm not saying every day the church is together. But when you think of the one thing we're most known for, we gather to do what? Judge outsiders. We gather because we're better than them. Now, I'm not saying the world is right in their view of us that way. But why do they have that view of us? Did it get completely made up? Let's be honest. I think few of us in here think, yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. We gather together to know how bad they are out there. It's not my responsibility to judge the outsiders. You know, folks, the difficulty in all this, inside the church, outside the church, the the difficulty is sin. Calling something a sin, calling something someone a sinner just just doesn't go over well. And, you know, as we think about them out there not liking that we're calling them sins, let's remember, we don't like it either, right? I mean, as believers, we don't like it when somebody approaches, hey, man, that's, that's not okay. You can't do that. That's not how God wants us to live. We don't, we don't like being confronted with sin. 
We don't like being told that something we're doing isn't. And we're believers. Why would we expect unbelievers to like it? It's, it's very difficult. And we've got to be careful. We've got to be good. We've got to be right when we're talking to a person or to the air about what sin is. And our problem is our lack of balance. It's what I said a moment ago. We, we see being nice and being truthful as contrary. You know, and so we kind of break up. And half the church, you're ready to mow people down for the glory of God. You're just waiting to be released, right? Let's, let's go get them. With the truth, we mow them down. And the other half of the church is going, you know, it's important to be like Jesus and just be nice. And we define nice as just smiling and saying nothing at all. Jesus gives us perfect balance. Now, we may not be good at balance, but folks, we at least need to know what the target is. And Jesus gives us a great target in that interaction with the woman caught in adultery, right? Y'all remember that when the institutional religion... When organized religion brought the woman caught in adultery before Jesus, and they're ready to do what? Kill her. I mean, that's, we do that well. Judgment and killing, we do that well. And they bring, they bring her to Jesus and, and say, well, what do you say to do? And Jesus gives that line about whoever of you without sin cast the first stone. Boy, that was a crowd killer. I was all geared up to be the second stone, man. <laughs> Somebody else. Everybody disappears. Jesus looks at the woman and says, man, I love you. I forgive you. It's beautiful, but it's only one part of the story. And see, the people, the word the Bible used, the people who wormed their way into the church, the people that Jude is talking about are the people who took that story and say, see, that's why we don't need institutional religion. That's why we don't need the church. The church hates and kills, but Jesus loves and accepts. But they don't remember how the story ended. After Jesus said, I love you and accept you, he then looked at her and said, don't ever do that again. And he didn't say, don't ever do that again because he's mean. He didn't say that because he doesn't want her to have fun. He said that because sin is always destroying. Always. Always destroying. Don't ever do that again. Grace and truth. Truth and grace. That's the weapons of our warfare. We got to use them together equally. Let's pray. Father, we don't use them together equally. And sometimes it's not the spirit guiding us. It's maybe more of just our personality. I'm more of a fighter. I'm more of a peacemaker. Lord, I don't want my personality guiding me. I don't want my thinking guiding me. I want the Holy Spirit of God to guide me. God, I have a long, long history of not hitting balance, but I sure want to. I sure want to get there. I thank you that you have put Jesus, your own son, right in front of us so that we have a clear target of what it looks like to be and to do both, grace and truth. Lord, we we just kind of commit to you today, the next two Sundays, this series that you'll help and guide us as a church and as individuals. We're all asking the question, what am I supposed to be doing? How am I supposed to be responding to all this? I I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. God, I, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the clarity of your word 
you will give us guidance and help us. Lord, this isn't just about interacting with the news or a school board. It's about interacting with people that are all around us, some of them that we know and love and care about very much. And boy, we need, we need your help. We need your help. Thank you for the Bible and the clarity and the help that it brings and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.